um, a certain Scottish minister, apparently, in the 17th century was facing the death sentence, and he took advantage of the customary honor that was given to such a person of being able to pick a psalm to be sung prior to his sentence being inflicted upon him. And being a savvy Scottish minister and knowing his Bible well and also being somewhat aware that help might be on the way, he picked Psalm 119 to be sung. And in the 20 or 30 minutes that it took to sing that long psalm, a pardon arrived for him from the authorities on high and he escaped his death sentence. Now, I don't know if that story is true, but supposedly it is. It makes for a good picture to imagine because this is the longest psalm in Scripture, Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in Scripture. And again, like last week, it might seem to you to be an odd sort of Christmas text. But here we are in the Advent season, and while the Word of God came when the Son of God was born... The words of God have been coming to his people in many ways and through many generations to the people that he loves. And Psalm 119 makes that perfectly and even poetically clear. I'm going to read these 16 verses that are on page 6 of your bulletin, but we'll range throughout the psalm as we go. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your, st- your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we do ask again that you would be at work in our hearts by your Spirit that you would persuade us of the many ways that your word has come to us and continues to come as your spirit works to increase our faith. And Father, we give you praise for sending your Son to come in the flesh, incarnate, to live and to die and to rise again on our behalf so that we might have the hope of eternity in him. For these things we give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I was just sure that it was Shakespeare. As I read through this psalm this week, a certain poetic line came to mind. How do I love you? Let me count the ways. 
I was sure it was Shakespeare. I just knew it. I mean, I'm no literary master by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know my poetry, and I don't know my Shakespeare very well at all, even enough to call it my Shakespeare. But I knew it was at least a popular sentiment, and so I began to, to look for it online to confirm, where did that, that famous line come from? It had to be Shakespeare, but I came up empty. It seems it wasn't Shakespeare, but it was a very popular sentiment. I mean, it came up in songs, from a 1980s Yoko Ono song to some 1990s hokey boy band songs to some more recent country crooners who have sung this question and answer, even on, on TV to a 1980s episode of Cheers in which Sam, the, the, the sporty bartender, tries to persuade the intellectual waitress Diane of his cultural worthiness for her. How do I love thee, Diane? Let me count the ways. It was not Shakespeare. It actually apparently was another British poet named Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who in 1850 penned a sonnet leading with that question, a 14-line poem. And maybe some of you poetic ones among us have those 14 lines pegged in your memory somewhere back in your distant past, perhaps. But you might do even better to put to memory some of Psalm 119, which is not a sonnet. It's much, much, much too long for that. But it is a counting of the ways, and it is a love poem as well. O Lord, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Oh, how I love your law. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. Consider how I love your precepts. It's a love letter. It's an expression of gratitude to God. It's a response to the many ways and angles and shapes of God's love coming to his people throughout the ages through his word. Let me count the ways, O Lord, that your word has come to me. This very long poem stretches out through 176 lines, and it finds its rhythm with eight synonyms. Law, testimony, precept, statute, commandment, rule, word, promise. These eight synonyms that continually come throughout the lines of this poem, even with some variation on their phrasing, and it finds that rhythm with the care of a Hebrew poet. It's, it's fascinating how these words for the word continue to come through the care of a Hebrew poet here. Now, you may know this is a, a 22 stanza, what we call an acrostic poem. That, that means that each line, or in this case, each stanza, begins with a certain letter. And so it's a thorough acrostic poem. The the eight verses, the eight lines of the first stanza all begin with the letter A in Hebrew, and the second stanza all beginning with the letter B, but it's not A and B, it's Hebrew, it's Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zayn, Hate, Tate, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, Maim, Nun, Samak, Ein, Pei, Kade, Tsof, Resh, Sin, Shin, Tav. I think that's right. Is that right, Robbie? You're more recent on it than I am. Aren't you impressed that I can remember the Hebrew alphabet? 
Don't be too impressed. That's like all the Hebrew I have left. But it makes a point, doesn't it? Because I think that's in part why this poet did this, because it makes it easier to memorize, which Hebrew believers would have done, because they recognized that Yahweh had made himself known in two different but complementary ways throughout history. One way is what we call general revelation. That's through the creation The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. All the creation around you as you see it, even the cold air outside, all the creation around you shows you the presence of God. That's general revelation. At the same time, the Hebrews recognized there also was special revelation. The poet says it this way, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Now give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. In other words, not just by the work of his hands do we know God, but by the words of his mouth as well. So this psalmist poetically unites the two together. In one of these verses he says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth and it endures, and your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. In other words, the creation came from the words of God. And the word of God has stood forever. And so as we celebrate next Sunday the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of that word, we celebrate the love of God coming to his people through his words for generations So what are some of the ways that the Lord loves his people through his word? Well, it begins to ring out in this psalm, almost like a Christmas wish list. He he brings liberty through his word to us. As this psalmist winds his way through the Hebrew alphabet, he ranges over a variety of reflections. You, You would notice as you read the whole psalm, which you maybe ought to do later this afternoon. And you might know that there, or anticipate there's a difference between English poetry and Hebrew poetry. They construct themselves differently. In English poetry, we anticipate the progress of the poem being marked out very often by rhyme. "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be... It has to rhyme. There. It has to rhyme. In English poetry, the the progress is measured through the rhyme, right? But in Hebrew poetry, it's a bit different. It progresses not with rhyme, but rather with reflection. And that's what you find as you read through this this psalm. In this case, as the alphabet unfolds, the eight synonyms carry through each stanza with various reflections on the significance of the Word of God for the people of God. And a number of those reflections keep coming up in different ways. What does God's Word do? It brings liberty. I will run in the way of your commandments, O Lord, for you have set my heart free. I will walk in a wide place of freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. It's the transcendent law of God that actually enables a person to walk the path of this life in this world in which we live. Much like a teenager 
rejoicing over receiving a, a driver's license for the first time. You know, they're, they're thrilled. Why? Because suddenly they're free, right? They can take the keys and drive off and leave the house and go see their friends or go to a movie or to the mall. They can go and do the things that they want to do at the times that they want to do them, at least presumably, that driver's license gives them great freedom. But without the rules of the road placed into the, into the mind and hopefully the heart of that teenager, that freedom only leads really to chaos and to bondage, doesn't it? Well, it's from the bondage of sin that God's word frees us ultimately. Direct my footsteps according to your word, O Lord. Let no sin rule over me. Apart from the direction of God's word, only sin will rule. It rules so pervasively, in fact, that one sociologist made a study of it that I've read about. The sociology took an interest not so much in sin as a theological sense, but rather in human behavior was her interest as a sociologist, naturally. And so she was asking the question, how does one's environment affect their behavior? In part, why do people behave so badly was her interest. And so she began to gather data, as a sociologist would do, and she gathered information, statistics from the 150 largest population centers in this country, and she tried to correlate certain sociological trends with the seven deadly sins. I don't know that she was a believer, but she understood what the seven deadly sins are known to be, and so she took, like, for instance, jealousy, and she correlated a city's statistics on theft crimes to indicate some sense of jealousy in that city. And she took the idea of anger and hatred and gathered their statistics regarding um, murder and violent crimes and suggested that 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 would equate to anger and hatred and, and greed. She took the statistics regarding casinos and gambling and even giving or the lack thereof in a city and equated that to greed and so on down the list of vice and lust and vanity and laziness. And she correlated all this data and she ranked the cities on each of the seven deadly sins and then she ranked them corresponding to how they rank on all those seven rankings. And you might not be surprised that Las Vegas, Nevada is number one, the most sinful city in the country. And I would imagine that the Tourism industry in Las Vegas probably relishes that, that vaunted ranking that we're the most sinful city in the country, so come on and we won't tell anyone else what you've done here. You might be curious to know that Dallas is number 89 on the list. We're not the most sinful city, but we're up there. And if you're curious to know that in the Metroplex, Plano and Irving, both are big enough, populous enough to rank among the 150 most populous, well, they rank down at the bottom, number 136 and 138. Apparently, there are not a lot of sinners in Plano and Irving. Well, her thesis, of course, was the more sinful your environment is, it must be that the more likely your actions, too, will be sinful. Well, what does Scripture say about that? 
What does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, My soul longs for your salvation, O Lord. I hope in your word. In other words, this psalmist makes no pretense that his environment is to blame for his actions. He recognizes that his actions require salvation on the part of God. And he's not concerned about what's around him. In fact, there's a sister psalm to this one. It's sister in the sense that it covers similar territory. One that David himself wrote, Psalm 19. And there David says, By your rules is your servant warned, Lord, for who can discern his own errors? Lord, I, I can't even see my own problems, but I know they're there. Your word warns me by it. Lord, he says, forgive me of my hidden sins. I know they're there, but I can't see them. I think probably that's a part of the warning that the, that the rule of God gives to a sensitive conscience. He cries out, help me, Lord. I I need liberty from what I can't even see about myself, but I know that it's there. But there's more, of course. David continues to pray there. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Lord, help me to say no to my own will. Lord, even at those moments where I know that what I'm about to engage in is displeasing in your sight, and yet my, my own will overrules me because that's what I want to do. Lord, help me. You know those moments. I know you do. And you know the shame and the contempt that come with those moments. And you long to be free from that, don't you? You long to be free from that. And the psalmist cries out here, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. The the psalmist recognizes his need for God's statutes there. The shame of our guilt is so awkward sometimes. You know, we think that the best way to to deal with it is to make light of it. I can remember when I was in college as a, a sophomore, when I began to get to know some of the older students, some of the seniors who were soon to graduate, and they were looking for jobs. And they were interviewing with companies around and and getting letters back about their interviews and the result of them, most of them rejections, sometimes acceptance letters. And one of the things that they would do is they would take those letters and they would post them on the wall of their apartment. And they would have 20 or 30 letters from companies that they had interviewed for a job with. And, and some of them were acceptance letters, but most of them were rejections. And, and they were, in a sense, a, a badge of honor, even a source of pride, especially the rejection letters. They, they loved to show the rejection letters, to just hang it out for all to see who would walk through there. It's almost as if they were saying, look, that big company, they had to pay attention to me. They had to spend some postage to send me that letter. This was back in the 1990s when people used postage. But they had to send me a letter to, to, to acknowledge my presence. Even though they rejected me, I got the best of them. It was kind of like hanging it out there to reject, to show their rejection as a, a source of pride because there was a sense of shame in it, almost to cover the embarrassment. But there's no liberty in that, is there? What does the psalmist do? He says, I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Constrained by God's word, he finds liberty. But he also finds light. 
because the Lord sheds light by his word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, that that well-known and beloved verse that so many believers know from the Old Testament. Here it is in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. You, Lord, shed light so that I can see, so that I can understand my surroundings and the world in which I live. In fact, even that I might understand my own heart. And we need it. The psalmist goes on. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Now that's a fascinating verse, isn't it? It's amazing. If God doesn't speak, then we cannot know how to live on this earth. Last Saturday, my family went over to For the Nations, refugee outreach, as many of you did, to help to volunteer for the the Christmas market that they had over there. And there in the entry hall, I I was standing with with Caitlin Mullins, and I noticed a, a box of Bibles that they were giving out to folks as they left, those who wanted them. And half of the Bibles were English Bibles, but half of them were Arabic English Bibles. On one page would be Arabic language, on the facing page, English of the same text. And the, the Bibles, as Arabic will do, went, I think, from right to left, not from left to right. It was, it was totally opposite to what we would do. And, and I marveled at those Bibles and that they had them there to hand out to folks who speak Arabic. Amazing that God speaks Arabic. Isn't that remarkable? He knows every language on the face of the earth. He knows every one of them. And he can communicate with his word to anyone who speaks any language on the face of the earth. And here are these people at this marketplace last Saturday who are sojourners in this country, who don't know the the ways and the rules of the customs of this place, and they have to Learn them as they go. They're in a place where they don't know the rules, but we so easily forget that we also are sojourners on this earth. We don't know the rules. We don't know the the way to go. Apart from God's light, we don't really know how reality works. And so he sheds light by giving understanding. The psalmist says, Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Open my eyes. I mean, that's, that's, in a sense, a prayer that we offer every time we come to Scripture. Lord, help us to see what's here in your word. Give me understanding. But you know, the, the older that you get, the more difficult, I think, it is to see by the wisdom of other people. I think this has been the pattern of my life. Maybe it's not yours. I hope I'm not the only one. But you know, as, as, as a child, there's a season of, of years as a child in which you listen to your parents. And, and you may not hear everything they say, but what they say is significant and weighty, and you assume that what your parents are saying is right, and so you need to do as they say. There's a season of that. For some, it's shorter than for others, but there's a season of that for children. As you become a teenager, though, that, that assumption of your parents being right changes to doubt, doesn't it? You know, as you, as you move through teenage years, you begin to wonder what mom and dad are saying. I'm not so sure that they know what they're talking about, in part because I don't think I like what they're talking about, but I think I doubt what they're talking about. And so there's some sense of doubt 
as you become a grown-up, that sense of doubt actually gets replaced by just downright suspicion. You kind of begin to, to think, you know, I, I don't just doubt that those people don't know what they're talking about. I'm pretty sure they don't have a clue. That's the way I work. And I assume maybe you do too. We all kind of have that in the depth of our soul. And as you get to be a bit older, middle-aged like myself, even that suspicion is replaced by knowledge. I know they don't know what they're talking about. I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to ask. I'm not even going to pay attention. That's just kind of the way that we go. And so it goes against the grain for us to receive understanding, to receive light from outside of ourselves. But this saint who wrote this psalm has gained understanding not so much from other people outside of himself, but from God's Word. He he says, I understand more than the aged do. Why? How could he say that? For I have kept your precepts, Lord. If you notice the verse 1, the first couple of verses here, it it kind of marks itself as a, a wisdom psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. It's a wisdom psalm, much like the Proverbs are, showing the way of wisdom. Verse 56, this blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts, Lord. He's already told us that I've stored your word in my heart. In verse 16, he says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What's the psalmist after? He's after knowing God's word, his statutes, his precepts, his laws, his testimony. That's what the psalmist is after. And yet largely Christians neglect that word. A Gallup survey some years ago of American Christians, those who profess to be Christians, surveyed them regarding their their Bible reading habits, and you can guess where this is going, I'm sure. 16% of them, reportedly, read the Bible daily. Remarkable, good habit. 10% of them read the Bible once a month or so, and over 40% of them just never read the Bible at all. And, And these are not just average Americans. These are Americans who claim to be Christians. There's, there's such a neglect of God's Word, and it, it's not to put guilt on us all in the sense of, what well, you know, I've, I've failed again, but there's a new year coming, and I can make another resolution. It's not that. But it should be a challenge to us, in a sense, to say, how do I spend time reading God's Word? How do I spend time engaging myself with what He's given to me in all of its ways throughout all the generations of His people to tell me His Word, to give me understanding? It's not just a mechanical process because often he sheds light to us in more intimate ways. Often he does it by giving us affliction. Verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted. I don't know what this psalmist's particular affliction was. We're not told exactly what it was, but he claims it. It's good for me that I was afflicted, he says, so that I might learn your statutes. Now, very often, it's the pain of frustration that brings the clearest understanding, isn't it? Wilhelm Belosian, I think that's how you pronounce his name, was a French Olympic sprinter this past summer. In fact, he was a hurdler, actually. And he was lined up for his first race in the 110-meter hurdles at the Olympics. He'd been, 
as you can imagine, training for years for this moment, for the, the highlight of his career as a sprinter to race in the Olympics. He was lined up on the starting line for the first heat of his race in the 110-meter hurdles in Rio de Janeiro, and a split second, a fraction of a second before the starting gun fired, he twitched and started. A false start, and he was disqualified. Zero tolerance. One false start, and you are out. And his response was dramatic. You might imagine he, he was shocked. He couldn't believe that he had just done that. He had ruined his one chance that the moment he'd been training for for years was gone at the twitch of a muscle. And that was it. He, he fell on the track heaving in tears. Imagine that. The, the pain of frustration bringing the clearest understanding. But it's not just the fast twitch mistakes that bring the most affliction, you know. It's the slow motion reality of living in a fallen world that really brings it. Now I know, as Jim prayed earlier, that for some of you, death has come near again. Beloved grandparents are no longer with your family for this Christmas. Parents whose, whose health you've watched deteriorate for years are now gone. Even children yet unborn we've prayed for, who will now, because of death, not be held close. And the affliction that's brought by that grief seems cruel, doesn't it? It seems unbearable at times. But the psalmist has a word for that too. Verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. The affliction of the fallen world in the life of a saint means not that God is absent, but that he is active. Why? Because his words didn't remain distant throughout the ages. His word came in the flesh and bore our griefs upon himself. He carried our sorrows. He was oppressed and afflicted, we read in Scripture, on the cross on our behalf so that we might never understand the significance of that good news apart from our own affliction. And so in faithfulness he afflicts us so that we might understand and know his statutes, his words, his law, his promise for us. But his love through his word doesn't end there, though, of course. It also gives life. O Lord, according to your laws, give me life. Over a dozen times throughout this psalm, as you read through the course of the alphabet here, you come to these words, give me life in your ways. In your righteousness, give me life. In your steadfast love, give me life. According to your justice, give me life. And this is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. Now he's not talking about just air and water and food, the things to keep your heart beating. He's not just talking about that, but he's actually talking about delight. The things that actually really give you a sense of being alive. 
I delight in your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. Your commandments are my delight. Again and again, he delights in this word of God coming through the generations. Because for anyone, I think it seems that you feel that you have life when you have something in which to delight, don't you? Something to bring you joy, children or grandchildren perhaps, success in your work, maybe even a championship by your team, something significant to bring you delight, maybe even material possessions and wealth. Verse 14, he acknowledges, in your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Elsewhere, he he calls it as in many coins of gold and silver. I delight in your word as much as that. Imagine that. In 1988, Tommy Thompson, who made the Dallas Morning News just this past week, struck it rich. He was a diver and a treasure hunter. And he, with the help of some investors, found a ship called the SS Central America. It was a steamship that had been known to have capsized off the coast of South Carolina in a hurricane in 1857 while carrying three tons of California gold. And he was after this ship. He was a treasure hunter. He wanted to find it. And he thought he knew where, he, where it was. And so he raised some money from some investors who anticipated making tens of millions of dollars themselves through their investment. And he found the ship. And he lifted enough gold out of that ship for his own desires. And then he jilted his investors and he disappeared for almost 30 years living the high life off of the gold that he had lifted out of the ship in Florida somewhere, having sold it and and banding together tens of thousands of dollars in cash and paying rent on a mansion in cash. Finally, he was caught by the authorities as his investors pursued him, and now he sits in an Ohio jail cell until he's willing to talk. He will not tell them where the treasure is. Why? Because he delights in gold more than he does in his own life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine doing something so absurd? And yet we do, don't you? We do it. We prayed this in our confession moments ago. What did we pray? Our delight is stunted and does not grow fully because our hearts seek joy in lesser things. Lord, in lesser things, your thing might not be a a sunken treasure 8,000 feet deep in the Atlantic Ocean, but your your thing, whatever it is, is less significant than the Word of God as He's given it to you. If God's Word has given you life, then your delight is in it, and others can see it. Because he gives life not just to you in delight, but he gives life to others through you. The psalmist says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And so others see me hoping in your word and what do they do? They rejoice, those who fear you. They see your life in me and it gives life to them, he says. You know, as a church body, this is in part why we often encourage and emphasize participation together as a body. 
We gather together on Sunday morning for corporate worship, but we also gather in so many other ways. Small group Bible studies and fellowships together, home groups together, in which you can see the life of God's Word in one another and rejoice because of it. He, he says, let those who fear you turn to me so that they may know your testimonies. How often do you pray that prayer? Lord, would you, it sounds almost arrogant, doesn't it? Lord, let those who fear you take a look at me. Let them take a look at me, Lord. Because in me they will see your testimonies. Because through you, who know God's word, others see and receive the life that only it can give, and it does not fade away. Five years after that SS Central America settled on the ocean floor with all of its weight of gold, Thomas Nelson Publishers printed a Bible in New York, 1862. That very Bible ended up eventually on the shelf of one of my relatives here in Dallas, and she had an estate sale recently, and that was one of the artifacts that didn't sell, and so she put it in a Ziploc bag with a sticky note on it and sent it to me. The sticky note had two words scribbled in bold marker, very fragile, and it's very fragile. A 150-year-old-plus Bible Fascinating to to thumb through its fragile pages as much as I can and see what's there. But on the front page, on which there is no print from the publishers, there's a handwritten note from its original owner. And it says this in very faded ink. Dear friend, please accept this precious book. Read it often, not only for the sake of the one who bestows it, but for the heavenly and soul-refreshing truths it contains. And should we never meet on earth again, may you meet Christ on the celestial shore. The Lord our God keep you until we meet again. It's got a signature at the bottom. It's hard to decipher the name of who it is, but the date is clear. October 1, 1869. That precious book is more than 150 years old. But the life that it offers through the one who inscribed its fading page, does not fade. You know, a psalm like this can, can almost feel like a to-do list as you read through this lengthy psalm. Again, you ought to, yourselves, later this afternoon, take some time, read through its 176 verses. It can almost feel like a to-do list, but don't make that mistake. Rather, wonder. Wonder at what else this poet might have written if he were counting on recognizing how the Word of God would ultimately come in the flesh. Christmas Day is coming soon. It's a week away. It's coming soon. And in all the ways that you are distracted and pulled and pressured to go, don't forget to count the ways in which your God has expressed His love for you. He has done it in perfect poetry. And in the birth of Christ, He has done it personally. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord our God, we give you praise for your word. And we pray that you would help us to see it. 
Help us to believe it and to recognize that you have been sending your word to us, your people, for ages. And that you have sent your Son, the Word made flesh, to come and to live and die for us and rise again so that we might have hope. Even as we come to these communion tables, Lord, to celebrate and to remember his death and his life on our behalf, we pray, Father, that you would increase our faith to believe. Unite our hearts together as brothers and sisters and unite our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.